chapter in Proverbs, and I, I, I skipped, if you, if you notice, we're going to cover Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, if you've got your Bibles or Bible app open. Uh, and if you are paying attention to what we covered last week versus this week, there's a little section in this first chapter that I skipped over about not getting involved in gang warfare. Uh, so we're just going to skip that, and it's not quite that specific, and what, you, could, you can contextualize everything. So, uh, but we're going to skip that one. I encourage everyone to go back and read it, uh, but we're going to cover verses 20 through 33 today. And I want to cover this. One, uh, I think it's a gr- we have a great opportunity as men, as Christian men, as men of wisdom, I think we have a great opportunity in our society today. And, and the more and more I read, the more I pay attention to what's going on, I am more convinced that we have an incredible, incredible time right now uh, to rethink how we approach the culture, how we approach people who do not know God, people who've been uh, disenfranchised by churches at some point in time. I think we have an incredible opportunity. And I want to I use this proverb today to really walk through the wisdom of the proverb and then help really point out what this proverb is teaching us about the opportunity that I think we have today. So uh, try to follow my line of reasoning as we go through this. It may not be completely clear, but that's what you get when you let me teach. So, um, so we'll get into this. Uh, as we get into it, what I want you guys to do is I, wanna, I want you to think about a time in your life that you've been in the midst of just utter chaos, just chaos all around you. And I'm looking at a couple of guys in here who I know have been in war and, and, and can, can probably give us some great examples of utter chaos all around them. Uh, I'm also looking at a couple of guys in here who I know have children and so can, can imagine what utter chaos feels like all around you. But think about a time where it just seems like everything is going crazy, that, that it, you're in the midst of something loud and uh, just ferocious and it's, it's taking all, it, all of your senses uh, are just being subdued by the chaos that's around you. I want you to try to imagine yourself in that setting as we kick off uh, this proverb. Because this proverb is going to be different from the one that came right before it. Uh, right before it, it's a very intimate conversation, almost like a parental tone uh, when the proverb we skipped. Very, very intimate. This proverb is more like a loudspeaker, something going off that we're all meant to hear, even in the midst of chaos. So if you see on your handouts, for the guys in the room, we have a handout that kind of breaks down this proverb between one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six categories. Uh, And so for the guys on Zoom right now, the first category we're going to talk about is something I'm calling the proclamation, the proclamation. And let me read this. It's verses 20 and 21 in Proverbs. And again, I want you to imagine yourself in the midst of chaos. Take yourself, whether it be your kids yelling at you, wife yelling at you, in the middle of war, whatever it may be. Uh, Put yourself in in that zone. So verse 20 says this. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. So in this right now, the the one thing I want you to see is that this is meant to be loud. It's meant, this wisdom that is being uh, given to us in this proverb is meant to have everyone hear it. 
everyone uh, is meant to be able to hear this. If you kind of imagine the setting that they're, they're kind of illustrating here, these busy market streets, right, where everyone is crowded in together, when you have the hustle and bustle of the market going on, they're saying someone could be standing at the front of the street screaming this at you, and you're going to hear it. You're going to hear that siren. This wisdom is for everyone. So even in the midst of chaos, we ought to be able to hear what is getting ready to be taught to us. And it, and it goes for everyone. So it's, this is wisdom being proclaimed to everybody. If you make that note here, it's being proclaimed to everyone. The second phase of this proverb is something I call the lament. And so we, we've studied uh, lamentations just a little bit in our class, but the lament, this crying out to God. And so you see here this wisdom is being cried out, and it says this in verse 22. It says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? So we step back to the lesson last week, whenever I had all those people come up and hold up the signs for fool and simple. And thank you, Josh. Major Duck's not in the room today, uh, but he I had to apologize to him afterwards for making him hold the fool sign. For reference, I do have that on video and I screenshotted it and sent it to Marty Grubbs just so he could see the Gene Duck with a sign holding full. Anyway. You see he is anyway, today, so. yeah, he's not here today, so maybe I've maybe, maybe I've run him off completely uh, from church. But he and I talked; we're good. Uh, but this lament is interesting. So go back to go back to the definitions last week. Make sure we know what it's saying. The definition is simple: uninstructed youth who are in danger of being naive, gullible, easily led, happy the way they are uninstructed youth, right? So that, that simple, that idea of just being happy where they are, they can be led astray by whatever forces next to them. Uh, but that, that idea of being simple. And then the definition of scoffer is somebody who always has their mouth open rather than their ears, right? Always has their mouth open rather than their ears. They know everything already. They have no need to listen to anyone. They're arrogant, unteachable, unlikable, Right. You know, just that idea of always being that loud mouth in the room, never going to listen to what everyone's going to say. So if you go back to that lament, it says, how long you young people who are naive and gullible, easily being led astray, are you going to be in love at being gullible and naive and being able to be led astray? How long are you going to be in love with that? How long are, are you scoffers going to enjoy being the loudest guy in the room, you know, not listening to wisdom, uh, always having your mouth open rather than your ears. You see this just this exasperation come out in this lament. Just why are you not listening to the wisdom that's being proclaimed at the city gates in the midst of the chaos? And you're in love and being simple and being a fool. And this is a pretty good lament. And honestly, I feel like praying this lament every time I open up my social media feed. And, um, and, and I, wish, I wish I could say I wanted to pray this lament only with the non-Christians who are on my social media feed, but I want to pray the lament with a bunch of people uh, in the church as well. And, 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 but this idea of us looking at everyone being completely happy to be led astray. I mean, I just, if you take a little bit of application away from this right now, how many people do you engage with are happy to post things that aren't true, right? Just because it meets whatever narrative they're wanting to sell, right, left, center, whatever you are, right? Uh, how many people are happy 
posting things that are untrue. When as Christians, we have the obligation to truth ahead of anything else, right? So how many people do you see that? And then on the scoffers, how many times do you see just, you, you all have that friend on Facebook, right? Or for these guys, Instagram or Snapchat, but for the rest of the guys, it's Facebook, right? So, so we all have these friends, you know, on social media, you know, who, who always have an opinion. Uh, it's not backed up with any information. Right. And, and, and no matter what they are, they're going to get engaged in social media fights and all these different things. We also we have those people who make their way into the church every now and then. You have the people in your community. You have the people around your Thanksgiving dinner table. Right. We all have these people that we want to lament over. Right. That we hope wisdom will seep in. Right. That they will follow the, the call of wisdom. That's really what this proverb is saying. It's starting with wisdom's been proclaimed to everybody. Not just the people who are really, really smart or the people who have a great college degree. Wisdom's being proclaimed at the city gates to the marketplace, to all of us, right? The lament comes with people who seem to be delighting in turning their back on it. The next phase of this proverb gets into a promise, though. Verse 23 says this. It says, if you turn at my reproof, right, if you turn then I, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you, right? If you turn at my reproof. Another way we could say that is if you repent, right? If you change your direction, you've been going this way. You've been in love uh, with. All right. I'm back. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> you've been in. Sorry, guys. I'm back. So. You've been in love with, with, with doing it your own way and being led astray. But if you change your direction, if you repent, God makes an incredible promise. He says, behold, I'm going to pour out my spirit to you. I'm going I'm to make the mysteries known to you, right? I will make my words understandable. I will embed it in your heart, right? So you just see this incredible promise if we repent, we go away from the things that are leading us astray and we stand and we follow that siren that is coming out. That wisdom is being proclaimed to everyone. We then get something next. We get, we get a few passages here that I call the warning, right? So, so wisdom has been proclaimed. Uh, there's a lament that we're going our own way. There's a promise of what will happen if we change our direction. But then there's a warning about what happens if we don't. Right. So let me read verse 24 through 28. It says, because I have called and you refuse to listen. You have not changed your direction. I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish comes upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not be found. God's not all sugar tails and rainbows and, you know, uh, as, as my brother-in-law likes to say, um, Jesus isn't always um, unicorns playing with roses, right? I mean, it's just, there's some difficult, um, difficult verses in the Bible that we really have to work through. And this one is just saying, look, I've warned you, and when you don't listen to me, 
things are going to happen. And this isn't like this, this passage where it says, I'm going to laugh at your calamity. This is not meant to be cruel laughter, right? Not, not kind of, a, I told you so, let me put my, my, my boot on your head as you're down, right? It's not meant to be cruel laughter. It's almost just laughable that you wouldn't listen to the wisdom that's being proclaimed to God and you would go your own way. It's laughable. The illustration I had here is going to tie in well to our motorcycle um, uh, discussion. I, whenever I was taking my motorcycle training class back when I used to ride, um, I remember the guy telling me the story of a guy who went and bought this $25,000 Harley. I mean, just all decked out, just all decked out. Went and bought the Harley, had never learned how to ride a motor, motorcycle before, uh, drove it off the lot, wrecked it, totaled it immediately, right? And so it, you almost, when you see that, once you know the guy's okay, you almost just want to laugh at him, right? How foolish is it? To buy, and if you've ever bought a $25,000 Harley without learning how to ride it first, I apologize, right? But, but how foolish does it seem to, to, to sit there and do that, right? Just how, how silly uh, does that seem? It just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like going out on this massive sailboat into the ocean, getting into the middle of a storm that you knew was very likely, and then once you get into the middle of the storm, you go, I probably ought to learn how to sail the boat now, right? I mean, it just, it's foolish, right? So part of this is wisdom's being proclaimed at the very beginning here, right? And one of the lessons is listen to it now. Listen to it now when you're not in a time of trouble, before you've ridden the Harley off the lot, before your sailboat's gotten out into the middle of the ocean on the storm, listen to wisdom now. There's a very stern warning. A lot of the times you see in the Old Testament in particular, and then Jesus does this all the time in the New Testament too, but, but you see all of these, these um, proclamations of warning, of dread and woe that is going to come upon the people. You, know, you see the prophets speaking to this a whole lot. Those are loving warnings, right? Wouldn't you want to be warned about what will happen if you, if you continue to be led astray? Right? Those are loving warnings, and we're getting that here in this proverb. A lot of times people just think God's mean and angry, and he gets angry, but, but he's not mean. It's a loving warning. So then, for, then we get the next section here, and I call it the consequence, the consequence. So if you don't listen to the loving warning and you continue to go your own ways, here is the consequence. And I've highlighted this section on your notes uh, because I really want us to dig into this a little bit. So the consequence is this. It starts in verse 29. It says, because they hated knowledge and they did not choose to fear the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore, listen, listen, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their feel of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. Because of the choice they've made to not seek God, to not listen, to be simple, to be fools, to be scoffers, they will be filled with the consequences of choosing their own way. I hate to use this illustration, but since we've got some college guys in the room, it should probably uh, come up. So the stereotype of a normal college person is that you go to college and you party a lot, right? I mean, that's just a stereotype of college. Now, none of us did that in here. None of us did that, right? I mean, we were all... I mean, when you went to fraternity parties or something, if you did go to college, you were leading the Bible studies, you were discussing abstinence, you were, I mean, you were doing all those things in college, right? So, so but I've known some friends who, while they were in college, um, they decided it would be a good idea to drink, even though all the wisdom was saying, don't drink, you know, especially if you're underage, don't do that. But they decided they're going to drink. 
and for these friends uh, that I know, so so they drank too much, and and there was consequences to drinking too much. If anyone's ever felt that way, and I know you guys haven't, right? But but for some of your friends who may have that that feeling, whenever you've ever had too much to drink, is a horrible horrible feeling. And I, I never feel that way. Uh, now I'm a man of God. Um, and I don't, I don't, I, I never get drunk. Uh, but there was a time. So, so I say that to say, think about this, this, this concept that it says to be filled. If you read back to verse 31, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. Think about that. Just being gorged with what happens when you turn your own way. Think about that overconsumption of the poison that when we turn our own way and the consequence of when you're filled with that, how you feel, right? Yeah, just, just think about that. When we go our way, there are consequences. And sometimes just being let to be turned aside to that, you, you just you feel you know, this sick, this overwhelmed, uh, whenever you have not gone the way of glory. And so there is a consequence that uh, at the end of the day, the simple are killed by turning away. The complacencies of fools destroys them. We all understand from a Christian worldview that the consequence of sin is death, right? The consequence of sin is death. Uh, that is the only way it ultimately leads. And so as we go our own way and we don't repent, that's ultimately the destruction we're leading ourselves to. So, so there's a, there's a consequence there. But then the last section of this proverb, I call it the act of mercy, right? And you always want to pay attention in the Bible anytime you see the word but. Whenever you see the word but in the Bible, you want to really pay attention to what comes after, what comes before and what comes after. Uh, I was teaching the book of James to my kids. I've got two nine-year-olds. Uh, so my twin nine-year-olds, I was teaching the book of James to a few nights ago. And uh, in the very beginning of the book of James, there's a sentence and then it says, but. And I go, kids, when you hear the word but in the Bible, you really have to pay attention. Well, then they started giggling uh, because I said but. <laughs> and then I doubled down on really trying to make sure they understood that but was important in the Bible. Then they giggled more and the lesson was absolutely screwed. So, but, but <laughs> for you mature men of wisdom in this room, who won't giggle whenever I say but again. Uh, we want to understand anytime you see the word but. So you've, you've had this entire proverb that's proclaimed wisdom, that's lamented that people aren't listening to wisdom, that has promised what happens if you repent and you turn around, that gives a loving warning and then provides this consequence of what will happen if you continue to go down your own way. And then there's this but, right? But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster, right? Whoever listens to me and will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster, even a sinner such as myself, right? There's an incredible act of mercy at the end of that proverb that just turn around, change your direction, listen to that wisdom that's being proclaimed at the gates. You've gone through, you have felt what it's like to be led astray. You've felt what it's like to be, be filled with your own wisdom. It hasn't worked out well for you, right? Turn around. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's a God who forgives. Turn around and listen to the God of wisdom. I, I, I said at the very beginning of this that I think we have an incredible opportunity. And... Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit in here, 
but in America, if you use America for a second, just and even isolate it to even Oklahoma City, um, we've we've historically for the last hundred years at least have, have been uh, predominantly a culture that is Christian by cultural as, as as a predominant force, right? I mean, we're we're predominantly a Christian culture. Uh, going to church is a normal thing. Being being a follower of Christ is a normal thing. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, across most of the world, if you would read the newspaper, you would see when people are listening to the newspaper what church they go to, right? Depending on which church you go to, you could get different business deals done, right? I mean, it was it was just a part of the culture and was abused at times, uh, but it was just a normal part of the culture. Oklahoma City, for the most part, Oklahoma in general, has been a bit shielded from... Uh, a lot of the cultural forces outside uh, because we're right in the middle of the Bible mm-hmm. Belt, uh, but it's five to ten years behind the coast, and 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 we're we're seeing the impacts of what it looks like to now live in a post-Christian world. Uh, and I'm not saying that as a as a horrible thing either. We're we're living in a post-Christian world. Let's all understand that the majority of our cultural forces all around us are post-Christian. Uh, you guys who are in college right now, are, uh, honestly, you're, you're going to be more influenced by a post-Christian worldview than you will a Christian worldview. You seem to know that going into it. Christians for decades now have done this thing when we were the majority culture. We've done this thing called apologetics, where we work on the defense of Christian values, right? The defense of the Bible. Uh, because the minority culture would then always go and poke, poke holes at the majority culture, right? Uh, we had to understand how to defend how Jonah could be swallowed by a whale, right? We had to defend what this whole flood thing was. We had to defend why bad things seem to happen to good people. We had to defend all of those things when we were in the majority. I think the opportunity that is present now is to flip that. So if we think about it right now, we are living in a post-Christian world where we are right smack dab in the middle of that consequence box. We are right in the heart of it. Wisdom has been proclaimed. People have lamented that you're not listening to it. We've tried to defend everything. We've given stern warnings. Uh, we've, We've helped try to understand what the consequence would be, and we're in the middle of the consequence box. And so instead of us uh, always trying to defend against a minority attack, I think if you turn it around, you will find that people who are living in the middle of the consequence box of a post-Christian world will realize that there is no coherent argument to the truth that they are following. Right? There is no coherent argument. And just like someone might attack and say, I can't understand logically how you can say that a virgin could, could, could give birth to a child, I think I could right now say, you can't make a coherent argument about what truth means. Right. Just like they would say, you can't make a coherent argument about how a man's sins can be forgiven or who gets to judge what sins are. I would say you don't even know how to be an impartial judge. Right. So there's this opportunity we have to reframe the way we have these conversations. I want to give you a bit of an example. Um, If you read the news, the there's an interesting thing happening right now where. we see these apology tours occurring. So uh, yesterday, I believe, yesterday or sometime this week, uh, the curator of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art resigned. And this person had done a lot of pretty incredible things for the the museum, was hailed as like one of the top five curators of art uh, in America, and had brought in all this amazing art. Uh, 
and had gotten a lot of pressure from, from the LGBTQ faction to really increase uh, their, their art displays from LGBTQ artists, and they had. And then with the, the current social pressures had gotten a lot of pressure to, to increase the amount of artists uh, who are African-American in, in, in origin. And so he had been working on that. And during a Zoom call with staff, he, he said, hey, I just want you to understand that we're also going to continue to purchase art from people who are white. We don't want to, be, we don't want to practice reverse discrimination. Seemed like a logical statement to make, uh, but he ended up having multiple people who were on the Zoom call from staff write and say that he ha he was using hateful, vicious language and that they demanded his resignation. 186 people demanded his resignation. And not only did he resign, but he apologized for what he said. Right? He apologized for what he said. And, and you got to be careful. I am, I am as open-minded about every social item as you can imagine. I always try to understand all the sides. But he came out and he apologized for what he said, thought it was the right thing for him to step down and, 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 and you know, gave this view of new leadership. Uh, a writer in the New York Times last night issued a letter, um, Barry Weiss is our call, I'm trying to remember what her name was, Barry Weiss, issued a letter of resignation uh, because she can no longer write centerline articles in the New York Times without being absolutely um, just bashed by, by her colleagues in the New York Times. And, and so we see these things happening where if you take the, the curator, he apologizes, gets run out of his job, uh, issues an apology with the hope, with the hope that that apology will satisfy the wrath of his judge, that it'll satisfy the wrath of his judge. Who's the judge in his example? The people demanding his resignation. The mob, right? Absolutely. The mob. The mob is his judge. Who's his jury? The mob. Who's his executioner? The mob. New York Times. Who's the judge, jury, and executioner? The point that this that this writer in the New York Times makes is that all of a sudden, instead of my editor being the senior editor of the New York Times who holds to principles of, of, of reporting the news, reporting, my editor is now Twitter, right? My editor is now the Twitter mob. Right. And so I'm not even going to put forward ideas that I know are going to offend the Twitter mob because then I will face the execution that comes from it, right? So, so if, if I'm trying to have a conversation with someone who's right in the middle of this, and I go, you are living now in a world whose truth and morality is allowing the mob to be the judge, jury, and executioner, and even when you satisfy the wrath of that mob, whatever truth standard you held to for this item is going to change in two weeks. It's going to change. So what's more appealing to you? Being at the beck and call, the whims of whatever your 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 constantly changing judge, jury, and executioner is going to be, or when you make a mistake, which you will, when you make a mistake, you turn, you confess your sins to a judge who is righteous, who never changes, and 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 whenever you confess your sins to him, he's going to say, yes, you have done wrong. Yes, there is a price to pay for what you have done. Come into my arms because I've already paid the price. I've already paid the price. Your sins are forgiven. Now go live in my righteousness. Right? Think about how appealing the concept of an unchanging truth, a righteous judge, and 
absolute forgiveness is in a culture where, where you're, you're dealing with the exact opposite for the sake of a new morality. All right. I mean, just real quick. I mean, whenever I was, whenever I was in Melbourne uh, and I was the chief of staff of the CFO of the world's largest mining company, one of my, one of my jobs was to be on the inclusion and diversity council. And I took that job very, very seriously. And our, our aspiration was to try to increase female representation in the mining workforce and as well as some Aboriginal representation, because we found that if we could have different perspectives on mining operations, we would reduce the amount of blind spots, reduce the fatalities, increase productivity. And so that was our, our, our intent. So since I've left, that has changed because of social pressures to be lots of things that really don't matter from a business sense uh, whatsoever, right? So. This idea of inclusion, which started out as a really good way of to trying to, okay, let's make sure we're bringing the right people under the umbrella. Now, the, for, for the, as we march up the hill of inclusion, we're actually excluding. Think about the New York Times right now is excluding the views of a moderate writer because they aren't inclusive enough. Just think about the contradiction in that statement, right? So, so we are dealing with a culture that's changing so fast that has no sense of truth. And when you make a mistake, you have no perfect judge to hold you to account. That is where I think we have an opportunity. I think we have an opportunity, but it's gonna take us doing something that is very uncomfortable to us. If we are now the minority culture that has to go into the majority of the culture and explain explain something about how this life of a Christian worldview is so much more appealing is so much more peaceful than what you're doing. If we have to be able to the people who explain that, we have to understand the culture we're speaking to. We have to understand the culture we're speaking to, right? I can't understand what's going on with these writers in the New York Times unless I'm, I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing, I'm reading, I'm dealing with that. I can't understand what college students are going through in their classes unless I'm talking to them. Right? I can't understand why people who may have a different political point of view feel the way they do unless I'm making friends with people who have different views than me and I'm reading and listening to people who have different views than me. Right? I think it's very important that as a strategic advantage, we as Christians, in our hope that we can help people understand the beauty of the gospel, that we go and understand the culture. And you may say, hold on, that doesn't really make sense to do. But read the Bible, and you'll find that the best evangelists in our entire history did that time and time again. Go read what Paul did in the book of Acts. If you just read Acts, you will find that he was always able to meet his audience where they were and then get them to the gospel. Right. Whether they be whether they be Roman citizens who had who had been, you know, uh, pagan worshipers, uh, whether they have been Jewish people who, who bought who believe the Messiah was going to be a political ally, uh, whether it be uh, Greeks who were there with the Jews. Right. No matter who it was, he understood their culture, their philosophy, their logic well enough to get them back to the gospel. Now, I think that's the opportunity we have to have. Instead of putting up this shield of absolute defensiveness because we feel like something is being taken away, view it as now we get to be the subversive people who go on offense, right? You get to go from being the big army that is always trying not to get picked off by guerrilla warfare to you are now in guerrilla warfare, right? So I, I, I think if we have a subtle shift in the way we, we think from a cultural Christianity standpoint, there's great opportunity because I know people right now are coming to the realization that when they have eaten the fruit of their own way, 
and they've had the fill of their own devices, it doesn't taste good. It tastes like you're hungover, right? It doesn't taste good. There is a better way. There's a better story that needs to be told. Make sense? All right. Don't quote me on any of this. Um, <laughs> any questions for the class, though? We've we got a pretty small group, whether it be on Zoom or uh, over here. Any questions? Wait, not yep. a question, but more maybe just a comment. I couldn't help escape the irony of the box around the consequence. And the first thing I thought of was the box off street in Seattle, yep. jazz zone. And look at exactly what that happened and what, what turned out there. Yeah, so think about the Chaz Zone for some minute. I, I, careful, I don't want to get too political here, but think about the Chaz Zone. And for anyone who's not familiar with the Chaz Zone, this was the um, autonomous zone. And so you get a Chaz Zone, and, and this is completely people not listening to wisdom and going their own ways. And I'm all for protests. America was founded on protest, right? So I'm all for protest. But this was just foolish, right? I mean, let's go take assets that aren't ours. Uh, let's set up a zone. We then have a want list that we post on front that has like the good water, as I recall, which I think is funny. Uh, or no, the good ice. It was the good ice. You know, you want the sonic ice, right? So have this want list. You know, within days, there's graffiti everywhere. Uh, the, the, if you watched how law enforcement was done in the autonomous zone, that was fascinating, right? You had people breaking their own code of morality almost immediately, right? So you think about everything where, where it started out with this, this ideal, how quickly it corrupted within itself. Because honestly, we're not that good. We're not that good. And we can get into, a, if you go back and you study philosophy, you will find that no one, can, no one can completely connect these dots outside of a Christian worldview understanding. I've told you guys before, the only philosophical arguments that completely make sense is either, is either the Christian worldview or utter nihilism, right? The belief in nothing is the only thing that will logically hold together. So, so everything, with, everything in the middle is going to have an, an apparent contradiction. And the Chaz is a beautiful example of an apparent contradiction. Right. It's just it's not by its own logic. It will not hold together. And that's not me being some right winger up here speaking. That's just watch what happened. Right. Watch what happened. Um, and so so. Imagine going into that zone and saying, saying the Christian worldview of, yes, there is a role for us civically in our in, in our society yes the bible actually gives us instruction about how we're supposed to confront these situations yes you believe equal representation you believe that everyone is valued right here's why the bible actually explains that right here's how christians have moved over history rightly and wrongly but show the right what it actually means to be a christian and value life value equality right that there, there is no better answer in the Bible because it's true and because it comes from a perfect judge, right? And so I just, I would just encourage you men this week to shift your thinking just a bit. Get, get away from that idea of being defensive of what feels like is being pulled away and view it as an opportunity. Because just like in the Bible where we have examples when people in the church continue to sin and are unrepentant and the church practice church discipline and kicks them out for a little bit. And that's a whole nother lesson, but, uh, but kicks them out for a little bit. It's because there's a consequence to following your own ways. And when you taste that consequence, the beauty of the gospel becomes much more clear, right? 
let's take advantage of all the people around us who are tasting that consequence. But it means you've got to get to know them. You've got to get to understand them. You've got to see where they're coming from. You've got to be ready for what it is they think is truth to confront it with the reality of the gospel. All right, guys, let me pray real quickly for you and we'll get out of here. Uh, Father, I, I thank you so much for these men. I ask that you would give them wisdom today, uh, this week. Uh, I ask that you just help them go about and be great examples of what it looks like to live in you. What peace comes from living in you? I know whenever I'm scattered about by the whims of public opinion, I am not at peace. But when I trust in you, even whenever I'm being put to shame elsewhere, I'm at peace. What a beautiful gift. May you be with us and help us all understand this better. May, may we read the word daily, soak it in, and be ready to listen to wisdom now, even before we may need it. In Jesus' name.